As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Today, joining me as my co-host is my friend and comrade, Mustafa. Today is an honor to be in conversation with Professor Isaac, someone I've kind of recently come across and whose work I've been really inspired by. And oftentimes when I'm speaking online or giving my critiques of religion, I found a lot of the topics I'm discussing Professor Isaac has discussed. So today we're going to talk about all things Islamic liberation theology. Welcome to the Malcolm Effect, Professor. Thank you very much, Assalamu alaikum, and thank you very, very much for for having me. And yeah, I think it's it's always nice. Wow, it's a great honor and privilege to have you here, and I'm sure it's going to be an amazing conversation, one that is, inshallah, extremely generative. So my first question is, it's kind of Three in one, but I want to introduce my audience and the listeners and those who are learning with us to the concept of liberation theology, then specifically what is Islamic liberation theology and what does Islamic liberation theology give us that perhaps we might not be learning in classical Muslim Islamic seminaries? Okay, now, first of all, Islamic liberation theology is, I was about to say the idea, but it is Mm -hmm. both an idea and a praxis, a way of doing things, a way of approaching uh, Islam and Islamic theology. It comes from the idea that all of us, all believers, whether we acknowledge it or not, we approach and understand our heritage through lenses. And that these lenses may be impacted by our culture, by our class, by our race, by our location, they invariably are. And so when you speak about Islam, Muslims generally prefer to not have any adjectives prefacing it. The whole idea that Islam is Islam. But the truth is that The Islam of, say, the Shah of Iran, it was very different from the Islam of the people who rebelled against him. They were also Muslims. The Islam of uh, somebody like Malcolm X was very different from the Islam of the people who claimed to be the custodians of the Haram, uh, meaning the Saudi family. And so it's not really helpful to just say Islam is Islam. And so Mm -hmm. how then do we struggle to understand Islam from the undersides of history? The undersides, I mean, when, for example, people say, I'm a non-racialist, often that means, you know, that they don't acknowledge the ongoing impact of black racism of racism, particularly on black people, because I'm 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 not uh, I'm, I'm non-racial, 
so an acknowledgement of the fact that the underclasses of history, the subaltern, that they have a particular right to interpret the Islamic tradition in a particular way. And it's also, and so it's an understanding, you know, what were the role of the prophets, the Ambiya, in our tradition? What was yeah. the role of, what, did in the time of the prophet or in the message of the Quran, was there what liberation theology calls the preferential option of the impoverished and the marginalized? Why, for example, did all the prophets sent by God come from the underclasses of history? And then when they spent a considerable time of their life uh, inside, the, inside the domains of power, say uh, Nabi Yusuf, for example, or even, even Nabi Musa, then they then subsequently had to spend an, a, a renewed apprenticeship amongst the amongst the the marginalized and amongst the oppressed so liberation yeah. theology searches for often the buried narratives of race and class and gender and other forms of marginalization tries to privilege these and reads the the history of islam and the history of islam goes to the time of adam the history of Islam and the texts that we have, and that is the Quran, the sacred precedent of the Prophet, and of course the larger Islamic tradition. How do we read all of this through the lenses of the marginalized? And secondly, with the intention of privileging the marginalized's interpretation over other uh, more well, reactionary, often just masquerading as traditional uh, interpretations of our texts and our tradition. In a nutshell, that is what Islamic liberation theology tries to do. Thank you so much for a extremely compelling answer, actually, <laughs> and response. So thank you. I'm extremely grateful. I guess my follow-up question would be, how do we ensure we or in doing Islamic liber liberation theology, how do we ensure that we're reaching the masses of Muslims? Because oftentimes, just my experience in the academies thus far, I've seen that, you know, some great critical minds, some great critical thinkers when thinking about the faith um, and thinking about Islamic history. But oftentimes I find these discussions are siloed within the walls of the academy. And oftentimes the language in which is used, I already know that this will turn many Muslims away or turn many Muslims off because, you know, it's a language that they're not used to. The language of faith has been taught through the language of jurisprudence. It's been, okay, what is the ruling on this? Where is the evidence of this? So in terms of doing Islamic liberation theology, how do we ensure that we're reaching the Muslims and the masses? Yes. Now, unlike, say, modernist theology and contemporary kind of debates and debates, you know, from a modernist angle, that sees itself as located largely in the university. Liberation theology struggles to be rooted in ordinary, in marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. But then the challenge is how do we reach, as you correctly phrased, um, the vast majority of Muslims? Now, the one is the, uns the, the, the discourseless or the unarticulated majority of Muslims. 
yeah. for example, one were to talk about the majority of Muslims in the in Saudi Arabia on the one hand, or in say in uh, the uh, United States on the other, at a public level or at the dominant way in which we understand where are the Muslim masses, you may want to think then of, say, social media. And then you will have, um, in fact, I mean, you will have other stars, that stars for the Muslims. Um, and it's often a very kind of, quote unquote, traditional form of Islam. Uh, you have your, say you have your, and I don't mean to be personal, but you've got your Abdul Hakim Murad in the UK. And then you have your, you also have another appeal or, or another claim to traditional Islam in the form of, say, the Saudis. And you have somebody like, yeah. say, Hamza Yusuf uh, inside the uh, United States. And these are, of course, for what is the dominant media today. These are big names. And you could say that, does this mean that they appeal, you know, to the majority of Muslims? The barometer that we then have is social media and so on. And one can then say, yes, you know, that they do have a significant and wider outreach. Now, the one is, do you want to appeal to Muslims as the majority as they are at the moment? Or do you also see Muslims, to some extent, like most other people or other communities in the world, they are also parts of other communities. And in this regard, for example, Muslims are as gullible to social media. Muslims are as entrapped by uh, consumerism that is the dominant religion in the world today. Do you then move on from, I want to appeal to all Muslims? Of course, in the sense that I want, we want the message to reach all Muslims. But I dare say that it's not... Um, now, the one is, okay, we don't want liberation theology to be a, a theology of a privileged uh, minority. That there's no way yes. that this is in any way sustainable. But on the other hand, one has to acknowledge that you are, big, you are addressing really the margins inside that society. For example, uh, in the United States or in the UK, are you talking about the more privileged Muslims who, and, you know, if you look at the responses, for example, to the death of, um, of Elizabeth, I don't, I think her surname was Windsor, better known as Queen Elizabeth. If you, for example, look at the, the overwhelming or the dominant or the articulated Muslim responses, from the more sophisticated this, from of the Cambridge Mosque to the, the, the big mosque in London, uh, Regent's Park Mosque in London. I mean, all of them, they were, Muslims were falling over each other to display their tears and their pain and their own royal credentials, yes. you know, singing God save the Queen or God save the King or whatever. And uh, the dominant discourse amongst most Muslims in the United States uh, certainly after September the 11th, is how do we fit in with power? Uh, how do we accommodate power? How do we join the powerful? Can you please try to arrange an, a seat at the president's iftar dinner for me? How can I possibly think? So is that the Muslim community that you're talking about? Or inside these communities are there other minorities um, are there other racialized minorities or, or oppressed communities that just don't get airtime? So I dare say, you know, that I challenge the whole notion 
that your discourse must reach, it must reach the ordinary Muslims, but at the same time, in some ways, I'm using what may be described by some as Marxist language. You are trying to create a vanguard that will introduce Muslims to a new kind of discourse about what their faith is, and that their faith is not one about primarily fitting in, but it is about speaking truth to power. And that power includes, you know, your own power, certainly as an academic. And how do you strip yourself of your, the grandness of the academy or the grandness of your wealth and then move in with other... I mean, for example, myself, you know, I try to work with domestic workers in my own environment, whether it is at the university or in the place where I live. Um, I've worked extensively on a number of other kinds of... So, But I'm not here to tout my own credentials. I am saying that, yes, it is a discourse that must guard against being buried in the ivory towers. In fact, liberation theology's essential place is not the ivory towers, but it is about ordinary communities. But inside communities, it's also about identifying where do I find my niche amongst the marginalized to learn from their experience and to have that experience emboldening and shaping my theology so that I can feed back into it. Thank you so much. Mustafa, do you want to ask a question? I wanted to ask Professor Farid. Recently, I was listening to a discussion you had with Professor Amina Wadud, and it was an amazing and beautiful heartfelt discussion but towards the end you talked about distancing yourself away from progressive islam and this was as you described due to the lack of class politics and so we see a progressive islam being used as a banner for regime change uh, utilized by things like the u.s state department so where would you locate the qibla right now where direction is progressive islam in within the circles of academia or con- contemporary discourse Well, progressive Islam, I mean, it's a very popular discourse in the academy. In fact, uh, people regard it as the default position to be in the academy. You're supposed to be liberal. You're supposed to be open-minded. You're supposed to be a friend of Western civilization, Western epistemologies. You're supposed to be automatically, that is the starting point, you know, And I'm speaking in broad terms that if you want to be inside the academy. So that uh, largely alienates two crowds. The one is it alienates the more traditional, and I'm talking about from uh, from a scholarly angle, not, you know, just following tradition, uh, alienates them. But it also alienates, I think, people who are really interested in challenging imperial worldviews, epistemologies, practices, because the truth is that progressive Islam, it is used in relation to Muslims in a rather peculiar way, in a way different from how it is used in, in, in broader ideological discourse. In broader ideological discourse, progressive is normally associated with the left. But in contemporary Islam, when people speak about progressive Islam, you really just have to be desperate to fit in with the logic of the empire. And that qualifies you to be a progressive Muslim. So, of course, as I have written um, uh, elsewhere in uh, Leeds University Journal on Reorient, 
there was actually a long battle for the use of this term. And uh, like many other discourses, after September the 11th, the discourse that the United States and the global North empire needed in its own weapon, in this case against, <clears throat> against Islamist uh, forces, it was a valuable weapon, and they've still cornered that market. So progressive Islam, from my perspective, from a class perspective or an anti-imperialist perspective, it is really a discourse that is meant to, to lube or to ease the way for Muslims to simply adjust to the demands of power. So I acknowledge that the term and so on, it's a very sexy one in the academy today, and it has successfully been colonized, I think, by people who often, I mean, their hearts are in the right place, except that they don't acknowledge the importance of seeing how the global north, the U.S., its allies, how, the, and I think for Muslims, that ought to be the fundamental contradiction. So for progressive Muslims, in a nutshell, Sorry, I keep on saying in a nutshell, and then I keep on rambling on and on. But Not at all. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. Thank you. Progressive Muslims see their primary contradiction and their primary challenge as traditional Islam and what they call Islamic fundamentalism. So the problems of traditional Islam, the problems that Islamic fundamentalism presents, progressive Islam seeks to challenge all of that. My position is that, look, the responses of Muslims to power and to global power, to occupation, to the Western greed for their resources, the responses to Muslims may be inadequate or it may be deeply problematic. When, for example, you respond to to imperial invasions of your land, with, say, suicide bombing, or or, it's deeply problematic. But Islamism or Muslim responses to imperialism is not the problem. It's problematic. The problem remains imperialism. And and it comes to kind of, you know, you see natural resources in other parts as your own. You have no bloody business, you know. It's not yours, man. So, Absolutely. so this whole notion that there is amongst both liberal Muslims and largely the progressive Islam people is that our primary, their primary challenge is how do we deal with, with Hedeki Muslims? And we're saying, look, bro, Hedeki Muslims are not the problem. The problem is the empire. We agree that Hedeki Muslims are problematic. <laughs> but they're not the problem. And so this is where, I mean, I and many of my other colleagues and comrades, where we part company with uh, the uh, progressive Muslims, notwithstanding the fact that there's some really good people amongst them. I mean, the fact that people ignore poverty or the class basis of, or the race, race and ethnic, it doesn't make them, it, it may make them inadequate people, it may make them dumb, but it doesn't mean that they're not nice people. Unfortunately, <laughs> niceness is not enough for us to navigate ourselves in a world characterized 
by systemic racial, gender, class injustices. Thank you so much, Mustafa. My second question was, so something I noticed while reading Quran liberation and pluralism was that the collaborationist Muslims during apartheid were predominantly non-black scholars using the same arguments that we see the same right-wing adjacent scholars who use the same anti-communist talking points, the same racialist talking points in in contemporary times, as if these tendencies are traveling through time and, and haven't gone away. So as they defend systems of oppression like white supremacy, capitalism, um, what is it about the Muslim scholarly class that is structured in a way that allows these defenses of systems of oppression, regardless of what the Quran says, because we know the Quran has many injunctions against it? First, I mean, you know, often when we talk about the Muslim scholarly class, we make the assumption that they are primarily shaped by scholarship, because that's how we, um, the Muslim we think. The truth is that they are as much victims of the desire for acceptance, the desire for recognition, the desire to stand out as being important. They, in some ways, in fact, I see that they're more shaped by this than many other kinds of entities inside the Muslim community. So there is a desperation to be recognized. And unfortunately, in many of these uh, countries, certainly we're talking now here about the USA and to, uh, to some extent in other parts of the global north, recognition comes from appearing in the media. Recognition comes from being photographed with a congressman or another member of parliament or to be seen. They are as desperate for recognition as anybody else. So it's not this scholarship that so much uh, informs the greed for power and uh, recognition. And then, of course, uh, the argument really underneath, it is the same, the same kind of collaborationist argument that there were in the period of our resistance against apartheid, that no, in the interest of the Muslims, for the survival of Islam, we must get on board with, you know, this uh, Congress iftar or, or this kind. Or at least, you know, we shouldn't be on board with these Black Lives Matter people because it will detract from our larger struggle, they say, to ensure the survival of Islam. This is assuming that the Muslims that they're referring to are not black to begin with. Absolutely, absolutely. This is, yes, this is one of my big... It, it assumes that the Muslim... Because the Muslim... I mean, and you may have, you know, a leading black scholar who's also on the faculty of your institute, um, at least a leading in the United States. But the assumption is that, no, I mean, the Muslim, uh, Muslims and black people are two different categories. It was the same this things inside in the apartheid regime. But it also assumes, you know, that the future of Islam that you want to survive is a collaborationist future. It's an Islam that sits comfortable with oppression and so on. And so is this really the Islam that you want to survive in the United States? Just an Islam where just anything goes um, and anything in terms of uh, marginalization and the oppressed and, and, and. An Islam that survives because it has turned a complete blind eye to the uh, to the deaths of of black 
people in the United States and uh, police brutality. So, look, I'm not going to speak about that. And sometimes, of course, the argument is used that other people are speaking about. So the kind of Islam that they're desperate to have surviving is certainly an Islam that I wouldn't want to be a part of. So, and I don't, you know, uh, let me be honest, I don't really care um, <clears throat> that, uh, that, you know, no, for the future of Muslims. Wait, wait, wait. What kind of Islam do you want these Muslims to be adherents to? Look, uh, Mustafa, if I can uh, just, this is a bit controversial, but it's a thought that I often express in private, my first venturing of this thought in public. One of the thoughts that often occurred to me, yay, do I really want Islam to spread amongst all sectors of the USA population? I don't think so, because many sectors of the USA, they have internalized the larger USA language of power, and they imbibe all of this in relation to other Muslims. So I don't know, do I want... Um, I prefer that Islam just spread amongst marginalized communities, you know, this hegemonic kind of language. Yeah. Farid, you remind me of uh, Sayyid Khutb and his famous uh, commentary on what he saw in America. I guess this is my, uh, leads on to my next question of the influence of Sayyid Khutb and the Iranian revolution on the call of Islam and similar organizations during apartheid, where we're seeing almost a return to the the fundamental text in attempt to undo with colonialism, imperialism, and systems of jahiliya or taqut, as they describe it. Okay. Now, both in the case of Iran and in the case of the Islamic movement in Egypt, they actually came up with an understanding of Islam that wasn't the traditional understanding. In Iran, for example... The traditional Islam in Iran was uh, a quietist Islam. Ali Shariati, of course, extensively deals with that. And um, inside Egypt, the Islam of the dominant Islam was the Azhari Islam, which is still uh, the dominant Islam today. And there you could see how their, vo- their voices rose the voice of the Islamic revolution and voice of the Islamic movement in Egypt, their voices rose in opposition to the dominant understandings of the Quran and of Islam. And of course, inside South Africa, we drew tremendous inspiration from resistance Islam. I mean, I don't want to describe it at the moment in in any other terms, say fundamentalism or Islamism. But it was really an Islam of resistance. And we drew heavily on the texts of these moments or these movements inside South Africa. Much more has to be written about the impact of, say, the revolution in Iran um, or the larger the revolutionary impulse of primarily the work of Sayyid Qutb inside the uh, Islamic movement, inside the Islamic movement. But yes, we drew extensively from it in our own struggle against apartheid. And what is very interesting, you know, today, of course, when Nelson Mandela is being presented to the whole world as Father Christmas, as somebody who went to jail for organizing Sunday school picnics, rather than the man who was trained in Algiers, 
in armed combat. So uh, if I may just, Mustafa, go slightly off the point, I'll come back to it. Uh, Mustafa Mandela, uh, his, uh, his name, it's NM, it's NMR, it's, his earliest name was Kholishlashla that he was given. As the name has his own life transitions and, and how Mandela then gets captured, uh, he ends up with, a, with another nickname that he had, Madiba. So Kholishlashla is the uprooter, the shit-stirrer. Mandela is the reconciler. And that was the last eight, nine years of Mandela's life, five as president of the country and four in president in retirement. So now everybody cuddles Mandela as, oh, this wonderful, cuddly man, you know, that was dishing out uh, sweets in the park to little children. And the Mandela that is the uprooter, that Mandela went to jail, who refused to come out of jail because he did not want to uh, renounce the armed struggle. Mandela was given the option, by the way, by the apartheid regime of leaving prison, the Robben Island, about uh, 10 years before he actually did. And he refused to because he's not going to renounce the armed struggle. So this Mandela is not the Mandela that liberal Islam or liberals in the world want to recognize. They all talk about this uh, cuddly Father Christmas character. And this is the same that they're doing to the liberation struggle. Oh, these Muslims, you know, they, oh, you know, alhamdulillah, you know, they played a role in the struggle against apartheid. Bullshit. Muslims, some Muslims with a revolutionary ethos, they did. And they managed to do so organizationally to give the impression that the Muslim leadership was also completely on board. So today, I want to be seen as a part of this. But wait, you know, the struggle veterans went through a lot of shit. So in relation to the struggle for Black Lives Matter in the United States, traditional Muslim leadership don't want to be seen there. It's not our these things because it's messy, it's dirty. But I'm telling you, come tomorrow and uh, Black Lives Matter uh, becomes a dominant of uh, these things and you actually see Black Lives Mattering in, in, in that part of They'll say we've always been there. We've always supported it. We're very happy. The truth is when the margins in the United States really become the entrenched, uh, the new powers, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, then it's important for these characters to fit with the new powers because, quite frankly, that's what they've always been interested in. So whoever is the dominant power today, uh, show it to us and we will head there. And this is kind of like it's a pharaonic, you know, it's a pharaoni kind of discourse, you know. Musa, alayhi salam, was told, Idhab ila Fir'aun, innahu taha. Go to Fir'aun, he is, he is the transgressor, and go and challenge him. You don't ask Fir'aun, you know, hey man, you know, can I please take a selfie with you? Can I please? So um, this is, I mean, yeah, so it is basically... Um, we see a repetition of this kind of thing. But, you know, this is the story of history and we have to keep on fighting these battles all over again wherever they, whenever they are a challenge for us. That's amazing. And I have your book, but Musa went to Faran. One of my friends sent it to me. I think it's a required reading almost uh, when, you, when you hear these arguments. <clears throat> but I'm seeing parallels here between from my experience within like white communist circles 
and when they refer to the working class from this like class reductionist perspective and when traditionalist quote traditionalist muslims refer to muslims as if they're they're non-black or they're non-gender depressed and there's there's parallels there but it leads to the next question of anti-communism being a front for racialism not just within governments but within muslims themselves how has your interaction been with like anti-communist muslims and more often than not has that been a vessel for their own biases and, and racism well inside south africa the anti-communist crowd that was largely the domain of the apartheid regime and of the Afrikaner churches. And black people in South Africa in general saw that as a bogey. There's a communist behind every bush. So while the South African communist communism in South Africa uh, continues to draw heavily on internationalist discourse, it doesn't nearly have the anti-religious impulse that it, that it has in many other parts of the world. So amongst the Muslims themselves, I don't think that we had ever really have had to deal seriously with the, commun- with the communist or anti-communist discourse. And by the way, that little booklet that you're speaking about, but Musa went to Fir'aun, it was a collection of criticisms or apologetics that was offered by reactionary Muslims. And there may be one or two questions there that deals with communism, but certainly not more than that. And I mean, and the strange thing is, it may sound very weird, but members in South Africa of the South African Communist Party, they could also be deeply religious Muslims, incidentally. So we've never had that as a serious problem. And in part, because I don't think that Communism in South Africa kind of has defined itself in anti-religious terms. So it's a a bogey in South Africa and little more than that. I think such an interesting point. One of the striking things I noticed when I visited the the grave of Karl Marx were how many South Africans that are buried next to him and they had Muslim names. That was quite a, a striking experience, actually. I guess finally... Today, we see all too often a capitulation or a a need or a wanting, rather, from those on the from those who describe themselves as traditional Muslims to align themselves with the right. And they say things like, oh, I've heard things as crazy as the, with the right, it's only physical damage or physical harm to your body. Whereas if you align with the left, you are talking about a, an akhira, an afterlife damage because it messes with your theology. And then when you kind of, upon inspection, what do you mean by this? They say at least the right preserves family and, and you know, ideas that are in line with Islam. Whereas the left will, you know, wants to demolish the family or the left wants to um, turn everyone into homosexuals or the left is obsessed with pronouns so my question here then is what do you see as the intervention islamic liberation theology can make a in response to those people who believe that islam and it needs to be on the right of politics and b in combating you know the homophobia the transphobia the questions about sexual uh, sexuality and gender I mean, look, you know, I mean, it's a, I was about to say the fundamental question is, and then I kind of wait, you know, the fundamental question for who. But yes. Muslim traditionalists really need to ask themselves, 
what is it that really matters to us? When the Prophet ﷺ, when he announced, you know, his prophethood, one of his companions that later became very famous in his own right, Abu Dhar al-Rifari, rahimahullah, Abu Dhar sent his brother to Makkah to go and check out this man who's making these strange claims. And Abu Dhar asked his brother to check out who is attracted to his message. Who is he hanging out? And so the one was, what is he teaching? The other one was, who is he hanging out? And when Abu Dhar said, okay, I can inquire myself into his teachings, but you tell me who. And then his brother reported that, look, he hangs out with the most marginalized. And so Abu Dhar said, okay, fine. That's my first tick box ticks off. He's on the right side of history. Now let me go and check him out myself. Okay, so that's the one thing. Then the other is the illusion that the Quran addresses of, of the worth of ritual for the sake of rituals. When the Quran says, you know, So you've seen the one who rejected the faith. And then the Quran reminds you, rejected the faith, it's not, you know, playing with my head this way or that way. Oh, it's the same person who repulses the orphan, who repels the orphan. Have you seen the one who rejects the orphan? That when they pray, that they want to be seen. And at the same time, they pray and they want to be seen. And at the same time, they are miserly and they are stingy. So the Quran many a times defines faith in terms of how do you respond to the marginalized? And so when you say, wait, that's not important, mutter the right words, um, and then I will judge you by that. Uh, wait, bro, your Quran, it's not a Quranic, your, your Islam, it's not a Quranic Islam. So this whole idea that, <clears throat> that the marginalized doesn't matter that the marginalized, the, 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 the du'afa, the fuqara, um, and the Qur'an doesn't just speak about the du'afa, the weak. The Qur'an speaks about those who are deliberately and calculatedly weakened. And that is why, you know, in my own language, for example, I seldom speak about the slaves. I speak about the enslaved, because you recognize agency. Somebody is responsible for the process of enslaving people and the process of marginalizing so these types, you know, um, who say that the right wing is the answer, and so let's, you know, um, and I'm not saying it's a choice between Donald Trump or the Democratic Party and the Republic. I'm not reducing it uh, to that. But I am saying that those who think that family is a husband and wife and their children, this is not how Islamic tradition has ever worked, to think of family in that way. Those who think, you know, that that gender-based oppression and the struggle to identify with other marginalized uh, communities, whether these are transgenderism and intersexuality, these are issues that have long been discussed and debated and acknowledged inside Islamic uh, theology. So this, I mean, your obsession with a God that is <clears throat> interested in the length of your beard or your sexual organs or 
And I, I really think, you know, subhanallah amma yushrikun, God is free from the stuff that uh, all of these really narrow-minded bigots um, are impugning uh, to God. There are larger issues in the world, Bruce. Smell the coffee. Smell the coffee of oppression and resistance. Smell the coffee of, of enslavement and liberation. Smell the coffee of imperialism and on imperialism, impoverization, systematic impoverization on the one hand, and the desperation of people for a more just world on the other. And once you've smelled that coffee, man, there's little space in it for this kind of reactionary, imperial, supportive theology that masquerades as traditional Islam. Ooh. If I had a mic right now, I'll be dropping it. That was crazy. Thank you. That was an, an, I have to end the show there. Thank you so much for your time. Listeners, I am going to post the social media of our guest and please engage with his many works. Um, I can't tell you how much I've been able to benefit in my short engagement thus far. You are listening to the Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. I, I just pray I get to do a part two of this episode. Inshallah, there's inshallah. so much more we could speak about, inshallah. I'm, 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 so, I'm grateful to you for having me on your show, Mamadou. Uh, and thank you. No, for it's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. pleasure. This is the Malcolm Effect of Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, peace out.